Be seated. Uh, friends, uh, we're going to follow the same uh, routine that we did last week. Uh, that uh, Those of you who got my letter uh, two weeks ago or last week, you know that the theme of last week's message and this week's message uh, is about God's design for marriage, and that weaves in a discussion of God's design for human sexuality. So parents, if you have kids who are older than the children's church age, uh, and yet you are not ready for them to... to uh, hear that kind of discussion. We want to respect uh, your calling as parents. We want to empower you in that. And so you're welcome to uh, dismiss your uh, kids in that age. Now I'm confused. Stuart uh, Timmerman, Elder Stuart Timmerman, is going to have a a class for those kids. I don't think this will be a problem for your kids. Uh, I think it would be beneficial for them uh, to be here, but we want to respect your role as parents, okay? So our text this morning is from Matthew 14, 1 through 12. Hear the word of God, friends. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. Excuse me. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother... She said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we believe that that's true, uh, that your word will stand uh, forever because it's your word. And the amazing thing is that every one of us who said our God uh, from a faithful heart, was once your enemy. (laughs) And what has made the difference is that you and your mercy moved toward us, not in response to some kind of good life that we had lived. Quite the opposite. But you moved toward us in mercy to rescue us out of the sin that had us headed for hell. And this morning, we want to celebrate your grace. Those of us who know Christ... We want to magnify your mercy, particularly as we come to this text and this topic. And we want, again, to be awash in your spirit, a spirit of grace and wonder as we look at the cross by faith again this morning. And Father, for those not yet your people, we pray that even in this room today, you would work in such a way and with such a lavish grace that the gift of salvation would be bestowed even this morning here on many. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> friends, I can't re-review, uh, although I'm tempted to, uh, everything we thought about together last week. So if you weren't here last week and you feel like you've just parachuted in the middle of a conversation, there's a certain sense in which you have. And uh, I just have to assume what we discussed last week uh, and the, the, the building blocks that we looked at last week. And so what I want to begin by saying is, is reminding you that as we saw last week, there's a straight line. My core argument last week from this text was that there is a straight line running from Herod's birthday celebration to the same-sex marriage debates of our day. And that line runs right through the imprisonment and martyrdom of John the Baptist. Now, that might not be a connection that is immediately apparent to you, but let me, uh, let me 
point out again why that connection needs to be faced, why it is very definitely in the text. And it's this, that the reason for John's imprisonment and the reason for John's martyrdom is that Herod and Herodias were making the same two fundamental assertions that fuel the same-sex marriage push today. And that first core embedded assumption that gave rise to Herod and Herodias' unlawful marriage was one, as a human being, I am free to love whomever I want. A core assertion in our current debate. And number two, uh, therefore, as a human being, I am also necessarily entitled to marry whomever I want. In other words, the extent of my sexual liberty is determined by one factor and one factor alone, human consent. And John has the audacity to say, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work from the bottom up. God is king. It works from the top down like the rest of the universe. And what matters is divine consent. And that's why he's killed. What we saw last week is that those assertions are not so much uh, sexual in their nature as they are theological. That's what's what's really driving both uh, Herod and Herodias and what's really driving the cultural shifts and debates in our day is really not uh, so much the passion to redefine our sexuality as it is much more fundamentally, much more radically, at the radical means at the roots, okay? Much deeper than that is a theological quest, and that theological quest is the passion to redefine not sexuality, but humanity, what it means to be human, to define ourselves for ourselves, by ourselves, without any reference to God. In fact, the argument begins without thinking about God. And we, as Christians, friends, one of the reasons that I'm spending the time to work through this argument with you is because we, as Christians, buy into the very structure of the argument that, uh, that the debate is carried on in the public square. We assume that we should make the argument historically, we should make it constitutionally, we should make it legally or culturally. Friends, that is not the way a Christian should think. Okay? We need to think biblically, theologically. Now, there are cultural arguments, there are biological arguments. Of course there are. But you don't need to believe in the lordship of Jesus to make those arguments. And what I want to do is I want, as a Christian, to have a cross-centered analysis of everything, What do you think Paul meant when he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What? Wait a second, Paul. Are you telling me that the cross was relevant to every sphere of... Yes, I am, was Paul's answer. I want to be that way. I want us to be that way. And so this morning, I want to make sure that we're framing the issue well. And last week, I want to make sure we're framing the the issue accurately because if we don't identify what the issue really is, we're going to be chasing symptoms and never really dealing with the core issue. And that's a very important thing to see, that this is not a new issue. The same sex marriage debate, as we saw last week, is not a new issue. It's the same core issue that began in the Garden of Eden and has continued in every one of our lives. It is the passion to define ourselves apart from God's design. That's what's at stake. So this is not a new issue, number one. Number two, this is our issue. That means... If we're right as far as the diagnosis of what the core motivation is, that means that I can't look at the proponents of same-sex marriage and say, those people are different from me. They're just like me. And that's why I don't ever want to encourage any of us to ever think about the proponents of same-sex marriage as our opponents. Please don't ever think that way. We have way more in common with them than we're willing to acknowledge. 
So it's not a new issue. This is our issue. And the wonderful, wonderful good news is we all need the same gospel. You know, I mean, when you think about this issue and what's happened and how quickly it's, it's, it's accelerated in our culture, I mean, at, at times, you can just get totally overwhelmed. Like, what are we supposed to do as a church? I mean, what's going to happen if, I mean, and this could happen. It could happen within the next six weeks. The Supreme Court could very easily uh, hold by, you know, a one or two vote majority that the Constitution guarantees uh, that the equal protection of the laws is to extend to uh, same-sex marriage. Now, that could happen. What in the world are we going to do? Well, friends, what we've always done as the church, we believe the same gospel we've always believed. We do not need anything more than the gospel we already have. We don't need some innovative ministry strategy. We just need to believe what we believe. And that's very encouraging to me. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is I want to think with you about three objections, and they're what I call the how dare you objections. The objections that are often asserted, frequently, commonly asserted uh, against uh, the, the biblical Christian position about God's design for marriage. And I want, to, I want to, I've met all these objections in my own conversations with people, and I want to I want to address those. If any of you have these objections, we may have some visitors today who are uh, in favor of same-sex marriage, and these may be some of your objections, and I want to address them for you. It's not so simple as you might think. But the second pastoral purpose I have in reviewing these objections is to equip you as a Christian people to engage with folks in your own ministries. So what are the objections or myths? I'm going to call them myths. The first is the myth of ownership. The second is the myth of hypocrisy. And the third is the myth of what I'll call the sympathy gap. So myth of ownership, myth of hypocrisy, and the myth of the sympathy gap. The first one, let's talk about the myth of ownership. What do I mean by the myth of ownership? Well, here's here's what I mean by it. And it's really important to see this one. Because this is the, I believe this is the fundamental assumption on which the entire superstructure of the pursuit of same-sex marriage rests. And we could summarize it as follows. My body is my body. Okay? Uh, My sexual organs are my sexual organs. Therefore, I am free to do with my body and my sexual organs uh, what I want, especially in the most intimate areas. That is a fundamental assumption of our culture today. What's the truth? Well, the truth comes to us in two forms, in two parts. The five most hated words in the English language and the five most wonderful words in the English language. What are the five most hated words in the English language? You are not your own. You are not your own. That's the truth. See, the myth is you are your own. That's what Herod and Herodias thought. They were their own. But the truth from the very first words of the Bible is that you are not your own. God, think about just how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. That means that there was somebody prior to you. Which means that you are not ultimate. Which means that every category of thought that you and I have must necessarily reckon with the one who is more ultimate than we are. And to the extent that we are not doing that, we are not dealing with reality. 
this is the and this this assertion that you are not your own can you think of anything that would be more quickly anathematized if you will by the so-called orthodoxy of our culture than the assertion you are not your own the bible's view of reality which is reality is that god is the owner of everything and everyone every part of every one all the uses of all the stuff in the universe god is the rightful owner of all the uses of our personhood god is the ultimate authority i was listening to a podcast yesterday on cosmic rays this is so cool because i found out cosmic rays are not rays isn't that amazing they're little subatomic pieces of matter that have been blasted through the universe by all kinds of things, supernovas and black holes and all these things. And while you're sitting here, tens of thousands of them are blasting through your body. You feel uncomfortable? And I was thinking yesterday as I was listening to this, I thought, you know what? God owns every one of those protons. He owns every single one of them. And I was thinking about this point in the sermon. I was just thinking, you know, the things that we tend to think of as the most intimate part of who we are, the most intimate parts of our personhood. You know, we, we, we cover up our sexual organs. We're not supposed to show them to people, right? There, there's a very limited use for them. And they are things that... that are owned by God, the things that we would define as being at the core, the most, if any part of us was ours as opposed to someone else's, it would certainly be that dimension of our lives. And what the Bible says from the beginning is, no, there is a prior claimant. His name is God. Now, that's a very strong message, and we resent it, and we resist it. It's true whether or not you're Christian. You are not your own. Which brings us to the five most wonderful words in the English language. And you guys know me well enough to know what they are, right? What are the five most wonderful words in the English language? You are not your own. (laughs) They're the most wonderful words. And the way they go from being the most hated words to the most wonderful words, is the power of the gospel, my friends. I mean, if, if you think that it is a bad thing to be owned by God, if you resent or resist the ownership of God, you are cutting yourself off from real joy and real love. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ takes the very words that we hate the most and turns them into the most wonderful words you could ever hear. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would. 1 Corinthians 6, let me tell you what page it's on here in a second. Uh, I want to look at verses 18 through 20 with you. So it's page 955 in your pew Bible. And so, you know, it's a very interesting problem when you get to Corinth. You can see Paul working out the cross-centered vision of 1 Corinthians 2.2 in this chapter. He's got a problem in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, there's a lot of sexual license. There are men in the church who are frequenting and patronizing prostitutes, okay? These are men in the church. Now, you would think that it ought to be as simple, how you deal with that ought to be as simple as just saying, don't do that. But Paul doesn't just say, don't do that. I mean, we would expect an apostle to tell us to flee sexual immorality. We would expect that. But it's how he does it that should really take our breath away. Look at verses 18. We'll read 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Okay, we expect that. But now notice the rationale, the reason, the why, the thought-out implications of the gospel as the reason why sexual immorality should be fled from. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, 
But the sexually immoral person sins. Now notice this language. This is weird. The sexually immoral person sins, and you see the word against, and you think he should be saying God, right? But he says, sins against his own body. What? That's kind of weird, right? That's not what we expect. So that clues us into the fact that Paul is not just giving this simplistic, hey, sexual immorality is sin, see the Ten Commandments, don't do that. Now that would be sufficient. But Paul has a much bigger vision that he is casting for Christians here. Sins against his own body. How could you sin against your own body? Notice now the reason. Verse 19, or do you not know He assumes that this is gospel 101. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are the temple, my Christian brother and sister. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the third member of the eternal Godhead. You, your body, is a temple of that person in the Godhead. And so when you commit sexual immorality, you are sinning against him because your body is the temple. Wow. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now that is just mind-blowing because it is so... Typical to hear people say when the Christian position is articulated, well, God doesn't like sex. Oh, he likes it all right. He invented it. He gave it as a gift to show us his goodness and to show us Christ's relationship with his church. God is not against the body God loves the body. We are image bearers of God in our bodies. And we're going to have resurrection bodies. So please don't ever think that God is against the body. He's not. He's not against sexuality. He's for sexuality. But notice this, that all three persons in the Trinity think very highly of our bodies. The Father gives us the body, creates the body. The Spirit indwells the body, right, of the Christian. And Jesus pays for our bodies with his own blood at the cross. He redeems us. There's no way that we should ever think that God is not for the body, nor is there any way that we can ever think that we are our own, because God made us, number one. And because God made us, he owns us in that way as creator. Christ redeemed us, paid for us with his blood, so we're doubly owned. The Holy Spirit now, applying the work of Christ to the sinner, then indwells the sinner, taking up literal possession of the Christian. So we are triply owned by each member of the Trinity. You know what that means? That means, and Maria and I were talking about this, and she, she corrected my math. She has to do that a lot. Uh, we were talking about the chain of title of our bodies. That means that the highest a human being can ever be in the chain of title on their body, of their body, is in fourth position. Because you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit ahead of you always. If you're married, if you're a married Christian, that means you're in fifth position. Because as Paul will say in verse 4 in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, the wife does. And the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, the husband does. So only if all, so in my case, I'm a married Christian, So I can do with my body, I am free to do with my body whatever the four superior claimants above me agree is acceptable. And unless all four of them say yes, I can't do it. 
Now, that's an, a dramatic assertion of ownership. But it is the best news you could ever hear. Because I want you to consider what this is saying the gospel means. Why aren't we our own, Paul? Look at his answer again in verse 20, friends. You're not your own. Why aren't you your own? For you were bought with a price. Do you see that? He's talking about Jesus. The reason we're not not our own is because Jesus bought us. He's the buyer. He bought us. And what did he buy us with? He bought us at a great price, the greatest price that could ever be. The price, he was not only the buyer, but he's the price paid. And he paid the price in order that he might bring us to himself. Friends, this is amazing. The reason we're not our own is because the Son of God wanted us. The Son of God wanted you, my brothers and sisters, for Himself. He desired you. He loves you. Friends, just think about what that means. You are not your own. Why not? Why shouldn't I hate those words? Because the reason I'm not my own is because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid claim to all of my life as the rightful owner, having paid the redemption price of his own blood on the cross to free me from my sins. And he did that because he loved me. He did that because he wanted me for himself. Friends, do you see? Why is it that people have such a passion for sexual liberty? They want fulfillment They want to find identity. They want what they think of as liberty. Well, I got to tell you, you'll never find it. You talk to anyone who has led a lifestyle of promiscuity, and the one thing they will not say that they have when they're being honest is fulfillment. The only place you're ever going to find that is in a love that will never break. And the reason you know it will never break is because it didn't break when it was under the highest and most intense pressure it could ever endure, when there were an infinite number of reasons to let go of you and me, to forsake us, to turn away from us, to reject us, in the heart of being made our sin, when our ugliness... And our liabilities were most clearly perceived by the Son of God when it was totally clear to him what it was going to cost him in order to buy us and take over ownership of our lives. Friends, he held on. There is a love there that nothing and no one can extinguish. Those five most hated words are changed by the gospel and the five most wonderful words there could ever be. You are not your own. Hallelujah. I'm not my own because I belong to Christ and that love now controls me. There is a mastery of the love of Christ. The love of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, controls us. It controls us in such a way that we no longer want to live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised again. The reason the love of Christ is powerful enough to master us in that way is because the love of Christ for us first mastered him. It mastered him. It determined his destiny. It carried him through a life in which he fought temptation, in which he lived out the law of God, in which he gave himself moment by moment to be that perfect spotless lamb. The love of Christ mastered him. The love of Christ for sinners like you and me mastered him all his life. And as we learn much of that, Jesus, as we see more and more the ways in which he gave himself holy, with a a holy abandon, if you will, for sinners like us. Friends, as you dwell on that, that's going to change you. And you won't want to hold your life back. You won't even want... You will be glad that your sexuality is not your own. 
because you are much more than just that. There is a logic, there is a logic to the love of Christ that makes us glad to say we are not our own. The second myth is the myth of hypocrisy. And this is the one you probably hear the most. And you need to go to Matthew 7. This is the Matthew 7 one. And we just got to go over this. This is like, this is basic stuff, okay? Matthew 7 1. D.A. Carson, I've heard him say this in like about 20 different sermons, okay? D.A. Carson says the, the, the most common verse in the Bible, 20 years ago, the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. And now, in our uh, postmodern, you know, intolerant age, the most pop- well-known verse in the Bible is Matthew 7.1. Judge not. Judge not. They say it with no judgment, ironically enough. Judge not that you be not judged. In other words, particularly given what we thought about last week, you know, because what we were thinking about last week is, hey, we're... We need to be thinking about our own sin, right? Our heterosexual sin is not more favorable in God's eyes than homosexual sin. And non-sexual sin is not more favorable in God's eyes than sexual sin. But particularly given all of those, uh, all of those thoughts that we were working through last week, who are we then to ever address anyone else especially in this most intimate area, about their sin. I mean, who are we? If we're acknowledging the reality that we're guilty of sexual sin, if we're acknowledging the reality that we redefine marriage in our own Christian ways, churchy ways, who are we to challenge them on their redefinition of marriage? Well, here's, this is a great place to be reminded of the first thing you always need to do when people are bringing up texts of the Bible offensively against you. Open your Bible and read the context. So let's look at Matthew 7, okay? Matthew 7, verse 1. Now, let's, I'm going to read down through verse 6, okay? And so we'll think about the truth. So I've stated the myth. What's the truth? Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? Now, up to that point, you might think that what Jesus is going to do is say, hey, there's an absolute bar to you ever talking, because you're always going to have a beam or a log in your eyes, and you might expect from the tone of those questions that Jesus is going to say, therefore, don't ever talk to anyone else about their sin. Let's see if that's what he says. You hypocrite. First... Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, that's very interesting, because what it does is when you look at it in context, right? Of course, Jesus is saying we're not supposed to be hypocritical. I mean, a hypocrite is somebody who says one thing and does another. A hypocrite in this context would be someone who, uh, who, who condemns or criticizes someone else's sexual sin while uh, not applying that same rigor of criticism to their own sexual sin, okay? But Jesus is not saying the fact that you're a sinner means that you can't talk to anyone about your sin. If he did that, then we would never even be able to talk to our kids about their sin. No, what he's prohibiting is not any judgment, but self-righteous judgment. What Jesus is prohibiting here, friends, is the, let's just be honest, he's prohibiting me from indulging in my preference to bypass my log in order to get to my brother's speck. So I can feel better about myself because... You know, I can distract my attention and hopefully his uh, from my beam by looking at his speck. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. You've got to apply the rigor, the same rigor of discernment that you're trying to use to, 
to, uh, to criticize uh, your brother or someone else. You've got to first apply it to yourself. And in fact, what you can see from these verses is that Jesus, far from prohibiting a mission of moving toward other people, he's actually authorizing it. It's exactly the opposite of what the objection so often what the myth asserts. Jesus is actually authorizing the movement towards someone else's life to talk to them, not about our moral judgment, but to bring them the truth about God's, as God's evaluation of their lives bears on them. And you know what, you know what authenticates that message is that we, the path we have walked along to reach them has been through the forest of our own sin. We have, there is a path to our brother Speck, but you know where it goes? It goes through the forest of our logs. There's a path. I don't get to use a telescope to see my brother's sin. I have to walk. Jesus is saying, Mike, you've got to walk the path of the reality of your own sin and the reality of where my mercy has met you in your sin. You have to have in your mind, fresh in your mind, the magnitude of your need, Mike, before you talk to anyone else about their speck. You need to have in your mind the magnitude of your need. I want you to take a tree survey on the property of your soul, Mike. Not to stop you from ever talking to anyone else, but so that you are full of the gospel's sweetness on your breath when you move towards someone else to talk to them about their sin. That's what we were trying to do last week, friends. And what Jesus is saying is that the only person who is qualified to be able to do microsurgery on someone else about their sin is the, the only hands that are qualified to do that microsurgery are hands that have been trained first, uh, trained and calloused as a lumberjack in your own life. Now, friends, we have to ask this question about ourselves when we come to this issue of same-sex marriage. Which is bigger in your mind? Their passion to redefine marriage? Or yours? We talked last week about how we, we reflected last week about how Christians are not free of responsibility for redefining marriage in a way that is, in many ways, that is contrary to God's design. And I think what, what this myth forces us to, to, to face is that we need to have a posture, not of paralysis in moving toward the culture, but of honesty, of vulnerability, of celebration, that even our passion to a sinful passion to redefine our marriages in a way that does not radiate the gospel. That God has even shown mercy to us and enabling grace. We, we have to have that music of the gospel ringing in our own ears as we move toward the proponents of same-sex marriage. And friends, I'm just so eager for that to be how the gospel changes me and how it changes you. You notice the perspective that Jesus is talking about and describing here is a perspective in which, you know, it's so different from what we normally do when, when we're judging. What Jesus is, is prohibiting is the standing over here, looking at that person and saying, you got a speck. Now, we love that approach, right? We love that. Uh, because it appeals to our laziness. We don't actually have to love somebody. Uh, it appeals to our pride, because we're doing that instead of looking in the mirror. But the vision that Jesus has and that the gospel produces in us, because it is what Jesus did for us, is this movement where the person, the Christian, moves toward the person entangled in sin, puts their arms around that person, identifies with them at their level, and then looks with them at their sin and points them to Christ. That's the posture the church needs to take. Now, friends, let's just be honest. In our cultural moment, this move 
is going to be resisted. But that's the gospel move, is it not? That's what Jesus did for us. That's the way he is with us. He takes sides with us against our sin. That's what he's doing on the cross. Identifying with us, being totally honest about what God's judgment upon our sin really is. I mean, we might want to think it's a little deal. That's how we prefer to think about the judgment of God against our sin, that, the, that we, have, we have ways for belittling God in our language and our categories that are so, they insulate us against the gravity of what it means to be a sinner. We talk about the big guy or the man upstairs. We don't want to make him angry. Friends, it's too late. It's way, we're way past that. And, and so Jesus doesn't sugarcoat, even when he takes side with, sides with us, he doesn't sugarcoat the reality of the consequences of our sin colliding with the holiness of God, but he does it as our advocate and as our servant. And that, that story needs to grip us. We need to remember it because we forget it. We think and we begin to buy our own propaganda. You know what? We actually are better than they are. So they need to come over here. That's not how God has dealt with us. And if, if that is how we deal with the world, then, we are, then it won't be a myth of hypocrisy. It'll be a true hypocrisy. But the gospel is, is given to us and is meant to turn that objection into a myth because of how we move in humility and repentance and celebration toward others who are ensnared in sin. Friends, what greater authentication of the mercy of God could there be than somebody who is clicking their heels together with wonder that they have been forgiven. Let's talk about the third myth now in closing, the myth of the sympathy gap. What's that myth? Well, this is what I, I, I struggled to try to put this into a heading. and I was trying to capture an experience that I've had in conversation with different people over the years, and, and also that I've read about. And, and this is how th- th- I would frame this objection. It's really about the, uh, it's really the assertion that there's an absence of sympathy in Christians and in Jesus Christ, an inherent inability in Jesus and his people to genuinely sympathize with a, a, someone who is in a homosexual lifestyle or who is wrestling with same-sex attraction. In other words, the way this comes out in conversation, or at least it has with me, is that the person will say something like this, you ask too much. This is the core of who I am. You're asking way too much. Now, what's the truth? Well, the first thing I want to say in response to this objection is that if you're raising that objection, the first thing I want to say is you're way more right than you realize, and at the very same time, you're far more wrong than you realize. You're, you're wrong. What you're right about is this, that the call of Jesus Christ is a call to lose 100% of what you think of as your life. We don't think enough about that, do we? in order to find 100% of what is truly your life. What you're wrong about is this, that neither Christians nor Jesus Christ are able to sympathize with you and your situation. I think this is a fundamental assumption that underlies this uh, objection, and I think it's wrong. Let me think with you first for a couple minutes about Christians, how Christians can sympathize with somebody in a homosexual lifestyle or who's wrestling with same-sex attraction. And, and guys, I realize that as I am discussing these things, I am passing over so many issues, and I, I'm just conscious, and, and I mourn my inability 
to address every heart directly. So, so I want you to know that as I'm talking about these things, I, I recognize that I'm just scratching the surface. And the one thing I don't want to be is simplistic with you. But what I ask in return is that you not be simplistic in your understanding of the gospel or of what God's uh, design for sexuality is. Okay? So, so, so the way this objection comes across to a Christian is, is that, and I've heard this with my own ears, you, you, you know, you, what could you possibly know about this? You're asking way too much. You, you're called to repentance. You're calling me to turn away from the core of my identity. The, you, for you to be a Christian, somebody who, who identifies as heterosexual, you don't have to turn away from that core of who you are. Now, key assumption that we'll talk about in a few weeks. My heterosexuality is not the core of who I am. Okay, but that's a huge assumption. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But this objector says, you you don't have to turn away from your self-understanding. You don't have to turn away from the core of your being. And here's how I'd like to respond to that. I'd like to respond just very respectfully and say, I beg to differ with you. Jesus' call to me to repent encompasses 100% of my life, too. And is just as non-negotiable as it is for you. His call of repentance to me encompasses 100% of my sexuality just as fully as it does yours. The king of the universe, the maker of marriage, commands me to uphold his definition of marriage no less than he does you. And believe me, no married Christian, if they're honest, is going to tell you that that's an easy thing to do. I have to die to just as much of myself as you do. I have to take up my cross daily just as you do. I have to present just as much of my body as a living sacrifice as you do. So let me, let me just push back on this objection and say that if you think that your living sacrifice is more costly than mine, I just need to say this. You don't know what you're talking about. You see, I think that objection is based on arrogance. And we need to be courageous enough to say that out loud. What do you actually know about my story? What do you know about any Christian story? How do you, as an outsider to every other life but your own, Presume to know enough about my story to make that argument. The only way that you can do that is to assume that our stories are perfectly equivalent except in the single area of sexuality and sexual preference. But in reality, you have no basis for reaching that conclusion, do you? You see, friends... The only thing we know for sure is what God's story is for us in Christ. And so I would say to you that that is the story that needs to master you. And my Christian brothers and sisters, we need to be living. Again, what is going to authenticate that call is a call to us to live out this repentance. If, if, the, if the gay community or the proponents of same-sex marriage saw Christians uh, willingly, more freely, more openly laying down their lives, uh, living lives of repentance and sacrifice for Christ, it would authenticate our message in this area. But much more fundamentally... And what I want to close with is it's not ultimately the sympathy of Christians that is decisive in your life. What is decisive for every life is the sympathy of Jesus Christ with your life. There is no sympathy gap for Jesus Christ with your life. He took on your flesh in his incarnation. He he identified with every and experienced every every temptation that you face in its core, in its being. 
He knows temptation firsthand so much better than you because you and I give in. We relent. We give ourselves up to temptation. Jesus never did. He knows its strength and true power more clearly than any of us do. He lived, identified, sympathized with you in your temptation. He sympathized with you as he lived under the law of God, as a man required to grow in wisdom and knowledge and stature and favor with God and man. He sympathized with you. And he, he brought that human nature, that perfect human nature, all the way to the cross. His sympathy reached its climax in his death, my friends, when he, he gave himself as your substitute, as my substitute. And he died... Although he'd lived a sinless life, he did not die. This is the wonder. He did not die a sinless death. For he was made our sin, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so he literally knows our sin from the inside out. And that is the basis for his sympathy. Now, this is not triumphalistic. It's not simplistic. But it is simple and it is triumphant. What I have learned over 31 years of being a Christian is that Jesus Christ is faithful. These are not abstractions for me, friend. This is my life experience over these 31 years. I am not saying that I have followed him well, but I am saying that he has loved me well. And I am saying this, that what I could, if you told me, for example, if you had told me at my conversion that there would still be sins in my life, certain sins in my life, which you, if you told me 31 years ago in my conversion that I would still be wrestling them with them into the fourth decade of my, of my Christian experience, I might, have, I might have despaired. But here's what I can say based on my experience, those years of direct personal experience, that Jesus Christ can be trusted. That when he tells me something is harmful to me, it really is. When he tells me something is beneficial to me, it really is. When he promises to come uh, to your aid when you've lost your way and you find yourself in the deepest, darkest thicket of temptation, and he promises to provide you a way of escape, he does. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. That is the truth. There is nothing you can bring him that he is not willing, ready, and able to bear for you. We just need to believe what we believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we want to give ourselves to you now this morning by faith. And I pray particularly for those who are wrestling in, with these very issues in their very souls. Uh, perhaps they've never told anyone else. Perhaps they've never even voiced it to you. It's been a silent struggle and a struggle that has uh, been a source of shame, a source of confusion. And I pray today that you who are the great shepherd from the sh of the sheep, that you would draw near to them and allow them to hear your voice and to taste the sweetness of your goodness today. Call them to yourself, I pray in your name. Amen.